You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht, Benjamin Pieske and Sam Gardner, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, Sam and I talk with David Hand. He wrote a book called Dark Data. What's dark data? So stay tuned and now some music. So dark data is actually all around us, like dark matter in the universe. Things that we don't see, but yet they still have an influence on us. And so David wrote this really insightful book about it and you will learn lots from his experience with dark data and what we as statisticians and the health industry can learn from that. If you want to learn more about being impactful, check the resources on our homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. Today I'm here with uh, my co-host Sam. Hi Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Really excited about today's podcast. Yeah, me too, because we have a famous guest here, David Hand. Hi David, how are you doing? Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so I mentioned a couple of things already in the podcast intro. Of course, we'll also talk about your new book, Dark Data. I think there's a lot of things that, you know, dark data plays a role also in healthcare and healthcare uh, data. There's lots of aspects there. So we'll surely dive into that. But first, I want to hand over to, to Sam to kind of raise some questions. Sure. So, well, first of all, I mean, you've been working as a statistician for a long time, and I'd just know, like to know a little bit more about your background and history. How, how was it that you came to be a statistician? How did you fall upon that career? Yeah, that's a uh... A nice question. The, the short answer is when I was a kid, when I was a child, I, I became interested in science fiction. It probably starts from that. And that led to an interest in science. And I had the sort of child's view of what a scientist was, that, you, you know, you, you'd sort of get up in the morning, you'd prove a theorem before breakfast, you'd dig up a fossil before lunch. In the afternoon, you'd brew up some bubbling chemical, frothing bubbling chemical. In the evening, when it got dark, you'd discover a new galaxy. And then I discovered, as I got older, science wasn't quite like that. You had to focus down. And the, the more advanced you became, the narrower and narrower your focus. So in the end, you did a PhD and became a world leader in a pinhead of sort of knowledge. And that was a bit frustrating because I had so many interests, you know, I was interested in biology and physics, chemistry and so on. And then I discovered statistics purely by accident. I, I sort of focused on maths because that I thought was general. Then I discovered statistics, and I'm sure you're familiar with John Tukey's uh, famous saying that the great thing about statistics is you get to play in everyone's backyard. <laughs> and I realized that was true. 
I, I could work with archaeologists in the morning, chemists in the afternoon, astronomers in the evening, because they all had data that they needed analysed. So I could contribute across the board. And that's really one of the wonderful things about statistics. You do get to play in everyone's backyard if you want to. You know, it, it just, you don't have to narrow down. If, if you're an expert in data analysis, collecting data and so on, then, well, the world is your oyster. I, what I, I sometimes say about statisticians is that they're like modern day explorers. You can see things that nobody else has ever seen. That's the great thing about statistics. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I, I think we all kind of have our own in, unique and, and interesting story on how we came about to be statisticians if you're working in that area. You know, for me, it was I was a physics and chemistry major initially in university and, and uh, discovered after a couple of years, I was a lot better at math. It wasn't yes. either of the other other sciences. So I changed to math. But when I changed my major, I went to the academic advisor and he looked at me and he said, well, you ought to take a, a probability and statistics course as part of your degree. And I, in my mind, I said, no way, I'm not going to do that. That's boring. Why would I do that? But it wasn't until I got into my um, professional career and then into graduate school that I got forced really to learn some statistics and probability and then took some classes and then just fell in love with it. You know, yeah, that, yeah, and that that was it's very interesting what you what you just said. You, you thought it was boring, and you know, for for most of my life, the public perception of statistics has indeed been that it's a boring discipline. Mm-hmm. And I've spent my life trying to convince people that it's really exciting and very relevant, and all the rest. And suddenly, over the last ten years, mainly because of the impact of computers and its sort of transition to data science, which is really mainly statistics suddenly it's become the exciting discipline. So we won in the end. Yep, yep. We, you know, data science is the most sexiest job of the industry, so, or century. And so <laughs> we, we are all now very, very sexy, so to say. Also, we may not look like that way. <laughs> yeah, and, and you just said something that some people might think is a little controversial is that, you know, statisticians are data scientists. I was actually in a discussion just this morning with a team that yes. I'm working with, and we were having this discussion. Are we data scientists? Are we statisticians? Are we both? And I wonder, what do you think about that? Oh, I think we're both. I think data science is 80% statistics about extracting, understanding and illumination from data. Clearly, you've got to be able to manipulate, a, manipulate the data. You've got to be able to collect it. You've got to be able to search, filter, do, do all these sort of computer science type things as well. You've got to be able to code and so mm-hmm. on. But extracting understanding from data is fundamentally statistics. Yeah. And I think the part of that is, you know, you can get very specialized just within our field. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you talked about how science, you know, the, the key to success in science is often specialization. Well, even inside statistics, data science, specialization, like I'm really good at data engineering, or I'm really good at predictive modeling or things like that, you know, you get get those types of focuses. And I think that's where some of the wars or the conflict comes in, because right now, I think people view the data science as people who can manage huge volumes of data and build predictive models. That's kind of mostly what that's about. But I think it will become a team sport. Yeah. Yeah. You, You know, like in other areas where, you know, you get experts in programming and you get experts in data visualization and you get experts in machine learning and you get experts in certain types of data sets and whatsoever. And so I think, you know, it's just all different facets, you know, of, of the same thing. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I 
I also agree that data science is, is fundamentally a team exercise. You do have to have people who really are experts at these different areas so that they can come together to do a good job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with, with that kind of, that's a nice lead in then to talk about a little bit about your book and what, what dark data is. And I, I'm going to read this introduction. This is from the, the Amazon website that, uh, where your book is listed and it says in the area of big data, it's easy to imagine that we all have the information we need to make good decisions or that we have all the information we need to make good decisions. But in fact, the data we have are never complete and maybe only the tip of the iceberg. Just as much as the universe is composed of dark matter, much of the universe is composed of dark matter, invisible to us, but nonetheless present, the universe of information is full of dark data that we overlook at our peril. And so dark data explores the ways in which we can be blind to missing data and how that can lead us to conclusions and actions that are mistaken, dangerous, or even disastrous. Uh, and then there's more in that intro. I'm going to stop with that. But so dark, I gave that little intro. Could you kind of give us a short synopsis of what is dark data? Yeah, sure. So, so basically dark data are, are data you think you have or hope to have or want to have, believe you have or something, but you don't actually have. It's, missing for some reason or inadequate perhaps for some reason it might not be recorded perhaps you didn't collect it in the first place perhaps it's been distorted by error but one way or another it's hidden from you. perhaps it's been distorted because you summarized the data into an average and a, you know which obviously doesn't tell you about the extremes or, or perhaps well we'll doubtless get into this other reasons why it might be not there but it's data you haven't got but perhaps you've overlooked the fact that you haven't got it and that's why it's dangerous because you're your inferences, your conclusions are based on assumptions about having data which you don't have. Yeah. And there's actually lots of examples for that. One of the older ones I'm thinking about is this um, from World War II. There is this collection of the where the planes coming back from Germany, where they are hit. And you have this kind of nice graphic where, you know, you can see, okay, these are all the areas where, you know, the, the planes got hit by, by fire. And then there are certain areas that are completely free. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a really, really nice story about, you know, the data yeah. that you that's don't have. Absolutely. It's a wonderful example because the question was, where should you put armor on these aircraft to protect them? And the, the sort of obvious in inverted commas answers is where all the bullet holes are, because that's where they seem to be getting hit. But Abraham Wald in, in New York at the time said, that's quite wrong. You should do the opposite. You should put the armor where the bullet holes aren't, because if you're getting hit there, the aircraft aren't coming back and you don't see any bullet Really clever thinking. And as you say, a perfect illustration of dark data. Yeah, it's interesting that example hits home with me because my first job I had out of the university was working in the United States Air Force as an aircraft survivability analyst. Oh, wow. And doing yes. modeling and simulation of weapon systems and how you know easy would it be for them to shoot down and destroy aircraft. And that was a classic example. I had, there's a book uh, by Robert Ball called uh, uh, Introduction to Aircraft Combat Survivability or something like that. And it's got that. Wow. I saw that yeah. in there. So, <laughs> Yeah. So that's called kind of very often survivorship bias or something like this. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. right. Right. What other sources do, do you see for, for dark data? Oh, um, you, you name it. And there are any number of sort of ways that, I mean, there are lots of 
familiar ways, non-response in surveys, people who just uh, refuse to answer, for example. But then in, in um, and there are sort of standard ways or familiar ways in the pharma sector as well, dropouts from clinical trials. You know, if you, if you based your conclusions only on the people that you had at the end of the study, you could get very misleading conclusions. Perhaps there was preferential dropout from one of the treatment arms, for example. So you, you have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. But basically, there are any number of sort of mechanisms leading to data being inadequate. Measurement error is an example. More sophisticated reason is sort of regression to the mean. So in trading, for example, if you just identify and trade on the companies which have been most successful in the past, uh, ignoring all the others, you might get a surprise in the future because you will have been selecting the ones which perhaps just by chance have done well in the, in the past. Yeah, same with kind of fluctuating diseases. Yeah, if you have study and you have this kind of pretty high bar for, for certain symptoms, then you get the, all these patients rolled in that, you know, have at that time point, these high severity symptoms. And just by, you know, natural fluctuation, lots of them will decrease. And then that's a yeah, so-called placebo effect. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and exactly. And if you're not aware of this regression to the mean phenomenon, you think, aha, my, my medication works. This is, this is wonderful. I shall sell it for, you know, to the public and and then funnily enough it doesn't work in practice and things go horribly wrong yeah. does the regression i mean impact also like how we assess risk uh, and and what i mean by that is sometimes we take the mean as the answer right but then almost nothing there's almost no average patient right the, the average patient doesn't exist yeah i i think i think that's right i mean there is always a tendency to to focus too much on the average, I think. And this, this is sort of another kind of dark data where you focus on a summary statistic and average, for example, ignoring the fact that, that that average might mean that everybody's clustered very close to it, or it could mean there's a huge range, you know, with people being quite different at either mm -hmm. end. They could also mean that you've got a very skewed distribution. Most people get made slightly worse by the medicine. A few people are made a great deal better. It can be very misleading. So, so when you wrote this book, I'm, I'm just wondering, what was the inspiration for it? What, what made you want to write this book? So over the years, something that Alex said at the beginning, I, I've always been interested in working on important problems in, in a sense, doing, uh, tackling things that people care about. So I've done a lot of consultancy work with all sorts of organizations because that sort of got me out of the narrow sort of mathematical uh, statistics of the universities to doing things which other people wanted to know the answers to. So I've done a lot of um, consultancy work and kept running up against these sorts of dark data issues. They would be presented in, in sort of different ways. Uh, I can remember early on non-response in studying non-response in surveys, which is a, is a familiar kind of dark data. And that, that's a kind which has been very well explored and people have developed tools for coping with it. And the same sort of thing for and coping with dropouts in clinical trials. Um, but then I encountered, I did a lot of work in retail credit scoring, uh, where the objective is to build a scorecard, a, a predictive statistical model to predict those people who are likely to default on loans or, or whatever. And I encountered the problem that they in that industry call reject inference. Basically, you, you're looking at uh, your sample of data is a set of people who have been given a loan in the past, and then you follow them up. You follow up the people you've given the loans to and see who defaults and who doesn't, and you can build a statistical model on that. But that fails, that simple sort of 
perspective fails to take into account that those people who were given loans were selected in the first place. The people that were thought to be really bad don't appear in that. They're part of the population. They're part of the population of people applying for loans. So your model is built on a distorted sample and could be completely wrong. And a, the, a bank, this is quite a few years ago now, approached me and said, how do we cope with this? What should we do about it? So that was one of the things which I think that was one of the first sort of real problems that got me focusing on this. And then after that, I sort of realized that these sorts of issues cropped up just all over the place. They're ubiquitous. Yeah. Yeah. I read an article about, I think, a big consultancy company. And they were looking into their promotion data, which kind of people got promoted and then said, okay, in the future, we really focus on these people and let's kind of recruit mostly these people. And then they saw, oh, they kind of were rejecting anybody that was not white male because most of their data <laughs> was from the past where they had recruited white male people. Yeah. And so lots of their more senior people were white males. Yeah. And so anybody else then didn't have a chance. So, but they fortunately found out quite fast that they had some kind of shortcomings in the data. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, that, and so that, that's a classic kind of problem, isn't it? That if you, if you build your model, if you train your, your algorithm or build your statistical model or whatever on data that you've collected in the past, well, maybe that data in the past isn't what you need to be collecting, it need to be applying the models to now. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think we probably, anybody who's worked in this area for a while probably has this long collection of examples where this has been the case. You know, I, one I thought about, it had to do with, uh, it was another human resources one where it was uh, they, the place, the site that I worked at gave everyone that worked in the operations a pre-employment aptitude test. Basically, it was like a, you know, just a, a IQ test or some skill and IQ test, right? And then what they wanted to know was, was that predictive of performance in the future? So when they hired somebody, did the scores that someone got on the test predict how well they perform? And they gave me all the data and there was no correlation. It's like, there's just nothing there. And they couldn't figure it out. And I said, well, how tell me how you actually hire the people and they would describe it. And it turned out what they were doing is that was one aspect they used, but they were really selecting the upper tail of the distribution. If you want to think about it that way, you know, so, so everyone was kind of already kind of close together in that aptitude. They kind of had these thresholds and cutoffs they applied. So they weren't experiencing the full range of variation that those scores yeah. could have. So it's no wonder there was no correlation. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it was predictive, they didn't have any data yeah. to show that it would. And in some respect, if it was predictive, why would you pick someone from the lower end of tail just to show that yeah. they prefer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the things that I said they should do in the credit industry for reject inference. They should pick a few people that they thought were, were poor risks just so that you could build a better model so that it would save them money in the long run. But it was an uphill struggle persuading them to you know, identify people they thought they would lose money on. Incidentally, your, right. your point, right. I think, is very important because the way to... We'll talk about this later, I'm sure. The way, the way to tackle these risks is to try to be aware of them, to try to spot things that you might be overlooking. And the way to do that, of course, is to have a diversity of perspectives on it. So, you, you know, you're, you're, you, this point about you've got to have a team and you've got to have a lot of different ways of looking at things. So, you know, people can spot things that I would miss and vice versa and so on. I think you need to have a good understanding of 
how data happens, uh, how Sam described it in a, in a recent uh, episode, which is that you actually look for the experiments, you talk to the people that collect the data, you, you see how, how the data you know, moves through the systems versus there's any kind of filtering in there or, or you know, any surprising things that are happening. And, and, and that you reminded me, I should have said this at the start, What's data science we, we discussed at the beginning? And one of the things about data science is having a contribution from the, the domain that you're studying, you're applying it to. It's not just enough to have statisticians and computer scientists and AI people. You've got to have people from the pharmaceutical sector or the finance sector or whatever area you're working because they understand the data. Yeah. Right, yeah. 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 You've really taken a liking to my my term there, how data happen. I think that's, uh, I kind of came up with that on my own a long time it's ago. Nice. And I really yeah. do think that's important is yeah. viewing the process for collecting the data as a process. And, and sometimes that tells you what you would expect the variation would be into in yeah. the data. And, and also in this case, the issues of where you might have missing data or dark data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you came up with a, a taxonomy of dark data. It's detailed. It's, it's more detailed than I thought it would be when I read, the, I read the book and, and, but well, you have 15 categories of dark data and I'm not going to read every single one of them, but for instance, type one is data that we know are missing. And type two is data we don't know are missing, you know, and that seems pretty simple, but how did you come up with these categories? Where, how'd you synthesize them? Yeah, I suppose the short answer is again from problems that I'd worked on. I started, you know, started with things. Oh, well, I mean, in a, in a way, you can start with um, Rumsfeld's known unknowns and yeah. unknown unknowns, but that's just a very sort of crude sort of categorization. And as you dig down and you look at the problems you've worked on and the problems that have been reported in the literature and problems other people describe to you you, you, you see that you need to refine it. And I'd just like to comment on my 15-item my taxonomy. I'm sure it's not complete, as, as we go on, new kinds of data are being collected, new ways of collecting data are being developed. So I'm sure that there will be other new kinds of dark data that I haven't covered. Yeah, I, I remember reading it. And there's, there's also some overlap, like even some of the examples you give in each category, you know, sometimes they fit that it's not just one category, sometimes that a example fits in what's the dark data. What, what do you think the usefulness of, of the categorization or the taxonomy? Yeah. I, th I think the usefulness is if, if you can identify, if you recognize that your particular data set is suffering from one of these, then you can start to think, how might we cope with this? You know, in what way might our conclusions be wrong? How can we adjust for that? But I do think really the point you just made, it is important to recognize that <laughs> any one data set won't, is, is unlikely to be suffering from one of those problems. It's more likely to be suffering from several of them. So just because you have spotted that, it's suffering from dark data type three or whatever. You can't sort of say, right, that's okay. I'll tackle that. And then my data are clean for whatever I'm doing. It's not like that. It's more likely that you've got more than one type and they can work together in a horrible sort of demonic synergy to make things life even more <laughs> complicated. Do you think of, you could use these taxonomy categories as kind of a checklist? You know, once you dive into a new data that you kind of go through all these different and say, does it apply here? Does it not apply here? You know, what's the 
likelihood that it applies here. <laughs> I, I, I think it could. Um, funnily enough, though, I've been meaning arising from my sort of conversations with people to actually focus down and produce a checklist. So to turn that taxonomy into something more practically useful. So I think you could use it as a, as a, as a checklist. It certainly gives you an indication of the sort of problems to look out for. But I think it can be transformed into something more useful. And I, one day I hope to get around to that. I hope to get the time to do that. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, the, the focus of our, this uh, podcast and the, the target audience we have are statisticians working in the pharmaceutical industry, yeah. but that's primarily what this podcast came about as, although I think, I hope more and more statisticians learn about it that don't work in pharma, because I think the problems are the same. They just have a different flavor or a different label on them, but the problems are pretty common that we face in those areas. You know, thinking about pharmaceuticals, do you do you have any examples or you know something that you've seen where dark data happened and maybe it had an impact where either a potentially a, a wrong decision was made or not the best decision was made? Yes, I mean there are first the generic sort of classic things like dropouts and and perhaps even more ex, important exclusion criteria. So, for example, in um, I don't know if you're familiar, you're probably very familiar with uh, Caroline Criado Perez's book Invisible Women. Uh, that's really worth looking at if you haven't read it. It's, it's, I think it's a really excellent book. Essentially, it's about dark data, sort of the male-female difference. It shows you how so much data across the world and in the pharmaceutical industry, chapter 10, dealing with the pharma and health sectors, it relates to men. So I think there's a big gap there. Men are sort of regarded as the default in, in this. People are recognising it now, so things are improving. But in the past men have been sort of regarded as the default. So, for example, diagnostic criteria for heart attacks tended to look at how the symptoms that men evidenced, whereas women produce rather different symptoms. So and in other areas, oh, I suppose COVID threw up lots of examples of dark data. We've, we've learned a lot over the last year, but as the year progressed, it was interesting observing things about, you know, at first, the... the People weren't aware of this. And then there began to be a suspicion that maybe men were impacted more seriously than women. And then there began to be a suspicion that maybe older people were, were impacted. And then and then maybe there was a, a, a sort of ethnic component. And then it was realised that was re related to deprivation and, and so on. So COVID is a sort of, I suppose one could write a whole, whole book about COVID and dark data and how these issues arose. Of course, people have focused a lot of attention on them. So, you know, we, we've learned about it. But at the time, it wasn't so clear. I suppose another example in the pharma sector, pharma sector is sort of really more general, but it's certainly true in the pharma sector is publication bias. There are specific examples. I don't know if you're familiar with the, you're probably familiar with this, given that it's pharma. Scott Harkonnen, he was found guilty. I was going to say he was found guilty of p-hacking. The judge didn't put it like that. But he, he basically ransacked his data. You know, the, the, the treatment wasn't effective on the primary endpoint. So he uh, looked through the unblinded data to find a subgroup that it did appear to work on and, and published that as if it was a, a sort of a proper discovery. So essentially, there's dark data there because he's ignoring all, all, all the other stuff, all the stuff which didn't. There's a wonderful example of a machine learning system for predicting which patients were likely to die from pneumonia. I can send you, send you references to this as a great example. And this machine learning system appeared to find that patients with a history of asthma 
were less likely to die from pneumonia. This is related to our biased data sets that we were talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's very clear and obvious from the data, if they had a history of breathing problems in the past, then they were li less likely to die from pneumonia. And, you know, this could be a great discovery. And it's possible you could contrive and come up with biological mechanisms. Perhaps they developed some sort of immunity or whatever, which, which made them more resistant. But then it was discovered <laughs> that the patients who had a history of asthma, breathing problems, were sent to an intensive care unit where they received extra special treatment and so were less likely to die, more likely to recover. So distorted data sets, but a, a, but a real sort of example. Yeah, yeah. That's a typical thing that you see quite often. It's kind of this, whenever the treatment doesn't work, you get on a better treatment. And then, you know, you don't see any more, you know, in the long run, what, what actually happens. I, I think this is a, a special problem in, in the sort of medical and, and pharma sector, exactly as you say, because so much of it is sort of observational, not controlled. The patient's coming along, uh, doesn't, as you say, isn't getting better. So you try another one and it's not a sort of randomized in any sense. The doctor chooses one because they have experience of it in the past and think it will do better. And, and so it's very difficult to, you've got a whole load of patients who've gone through these strange sort of sequences of, of, of medications, very difficult to track to extract sensible conclusions from that. Uh, that reminds me of a data set that I analyzed very, very early in my career when I was still at academia. Physician brought some data from his surgery And the um, so, and we looked into all kind of different outcomes. And one of the factors that we could look into were the surgeons. And there was, of course, the, the head of the department, a professor, and then there were some, you know, more experienced ones and more junior ones. And we looked at the outcome rates. And, you know, the head of the department had the worst outcome rates. <laughs> it, it was a oh, your head of department doesn't seem to be that good of a surgeon. And he said, no, 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 no. Look at these, these patients. These are all those that, you know, had no other chance. And, you know, they would have never been, you know, gone to some kind of more junior surgeon. The, real, yeah, the really so, sick patients, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's only, you know, called if nobody else wants to touch it. <laughs> need a little bit of a covariate adjustment there. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So talking about covariate uh, adjustment, is that one of the things to kind of go there so that you adjust for factors to kind of, see how kind of the da dark data might affect your analysis? That's right. That's, that's one, of, one of the sort of strategies for adjusting for this. Yes, if you, I mean, fundamentally, the way to cope with dark data is to understand why you've got dark data and what might be missing. When, when, if that happens, then you can think about, right, how do I adjust for this? How do I compensate for it? And, and COVID, the use of covariates is indeed one way to do that, yeah. In fact, that's the, referring to the credit scoring example way back. That was one of the strategies that I, I described for that to, to the bank that was employing me as a consultant. But more generally, yeah, in the pharma and the health sector, yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes in this dark data, I, when I read it, I was reminded of something I, I read uh, Edward Deming wrote a long time ago, and it was in his 14 points for management, if you've, if you've ever read that. But 
one of the things he said is that the key figures that management need are either unknown or unknowable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and so you can say that as a statement, you know, and if you'd ever seen any of recordings of Deming, he's very blunt, you know, he'd be, be, just come like hit you with a hammer with what he said. And so, so what do you do in that situation? What do you do in a situation where the data you need is either unknown or unknowable? How do you handle that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, sort of simple answer is you try to find proxies for it. But of course, you have to be very careful because any number of stories of, and, and real cases of the proxies misleading you um, mm-hmm. because they don't really quite capture what you're interested in or because they're distorted in, in some other way. But, but that's fundamentally what you have to do. Or, and I quite like this in some context, maybe you change the question. Maybe you don't really want to know that. You want to know this. And I have got data for this. Sometimes oh. you can do that. <laughs> yeah, I've tried to use that approach also as well. It's kind of finding a related question and getting an answer to that. What do you think about these kind of more extrapolating uh, approaches? Yeah, where you kind of, if you go back to the example with the predicting defaults, you could kind of see, okay, we look into a couple of these covariates and then kind of see, okay, if we move out of this range, yeah, and you can think like, well, maybe you have well, linear or, uh, you know, some kind of exponential uh, effects there, and we could kind of get a little bit outside of our kind of the data area where we have data. Yeah, so... Yeah. so I, I think... I think- you can use those, but you have to be very careful. I, um, when I was working in the credit sector, I, I, around the year 2000, I used to uh, project in my presentations, I used to show uh, a graph of the growth in retail credit, consumer, uh, credit card credit, that, that sort of thing, consumer credit. And it was basically exponentially increasing up to the year 2000. And I would say, what do you think is going to happen next? Look, I can pit, fit a perfect exponential curve to these data. Do you think it's going to go on increasing forever exponentially? Or do you think something is going to happen? And I, I've subsequently claimed that I predicted the 2008. <laughs> of course, my prediction, my prediction was useless because I didn't say when it was going to Anyway, I, I used that illustration to try to convince that sector that it shouldn't just use... Um, data-driven models, models which just fit to a relationship, a pattern, a configuration in the data, but should try to inject some kind of understanding or theory. In that case, it would be economic understanding, but it could be chemical understanding, biochemical understanding in the, in the pharma sector um, into what you're doing, because that sort of constrains the kind, you know, you'd never fit a, an exponential model which was going to go on increasing forever uh, if, if, because real life doesn't do that. So that you, you wouldn't do. It. So I think that's one way you can approach the, these things. And, and perhaps I can say I think there's a more general issue here. One of the reasons that data science, machine learning, and so on has taken off in such a big way is because of the you can take a data set, probably a big data set, a large data set, and just fit a model to it using machine learning algorithms and so on. Um, but these things I think are fundamentally brittle. Because if the world changes, like in my retail credit example, your model just won't work anymore. And I think there's a bit of a risk sort of underlying this tremendous uh, interest in data science because so many of the models are of that kind. They, they, they haven't injected 
theory about what's going on. It's just data driven. And, and so I think there, there, is a, there is a bit of a risk. So is it about model uncertainty in a way? Part of it's about model uncertainty, but I think it's really about understanding. Obviously, if your theory is wrong, well, yeah. you know, that's a different matter. But if your theory has got an element of truth in it, then that sort of constrains the sorts of shapes of models uh, and, and so on that you're, you're likely to fit. So model uncertainty comes into it, but I think it's really understanding what's the core. I think we all see that we generally understand you know, these issues, but do you think um, statisticians have any blind spots with respect to dark data? Oh, yeah, we, we, we all have blind spots. I'm sure I've made a lot of mistakes in the past. I, I think the trouble is, of course, what we're trying to do when we try to identify our blind spots is we're trying to identify things we haven't thought of, <laughs> which is sort of fun. See something which isn't there, which is, you know, the dark data problem. And I think that's fundamentally different. So I suppose... I come back to this point about diversity, what we were saying earlier about teams, um, having some other people who might see things, might not have the same blind spots you do, um, mm -hmm. you know, so that you, we, you sort of cover. I'm, I'm also an enthusiast for, for red teams. You build a model and then you get someone to criticize it to point out, well, you, did you think about this for the data? Maybe the data is inadequate in that way, that, that kind of thing to try to, try to sort of, see through the blind spot. Yeah. So basically something like a peer review system. Yes, yeah, some, some kind of yeah. person that plays devil advocate. What, what, devil's what, advocate. what, what happens yeah. if, you know, something here goes wrong? Or like my former professor at university would say, what happens at the margin? It's kind of always an <laughs> interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and perhaps more formally, you could do that, you know, where you list out your assumptions you're making. And then what yes. you do is you, you stress test your assumptions. Yes, yes. And, and again, I think that's another example of why it's good to have other people as well, because they can point out, ah, but you also assumed this, and you didn't say that. You assumed that the cases were independent. You didn't actually write that down, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that is actually a very, very nice scenario where you can would hugely overestimate your precision if you uh, think that everything that you observe is independent when in fact it's not yeah yeah I, i'm sure i'm sure you've had examples of this as well but i can certainly i used to work at the institute of psychiatry in london as a statistician quite a long time ago now and i can certainly remember cases of researchers at the, at the institute coming to me And we spend half an hour talking about the data and they got so many data points. And then at the end, this was when I was young, I've learned, learned not to do this now, but at the end, I would say, so, you know, um, at all the end, I discovered that they were only based on three cases. It's just that each case had a hundred observations on, on. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or everybody was rated by the same physician and you think like, hmm. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, I wonder what taxonomy that fits within, you know, in terms of where it fits in taxonomy, where really it has to do with what's the independent data, right, as opposed to the correlated data. And, you know, some, that, person, that person thought they had hundreds of data points. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. really they had three. Yes, reality yeah, three. yeah, yeah. So, so what's missing there is a crucial aspect, a crucial aspect of the data, of the, of the data description. It's sort of related to one of, one of my, one of the items in my taxonomy 
is is missing variables. Essentially, I haven't called it that, but it's missing variables. You hadn't thought to you hadn't thought to measure this, and yet this explains a lot of things. You know, mm-hmm. which of course, and there are classic examples in the literature of correlations, which you try to explain in a causal way, but in fact, there's a third variable which just explains them. Yeah. Yeah, even the thing that I find a lot is just repeated measurements of the same thing. People think that that's just more data. It's not always more data. Yeah. Uh, the phrase I use a lot with people is, is, is that it's as if I knocked on the door and you answered the door and I said, hello, five times. <laughs> yes, it, still means, yes, yes. it still means hello, right? Yeah. That's all it means. You just, yeah. you just got it five times. And that's what happens sometimes with it. They just replicate, but there's almost no replication error. And it's yeah. all based on that, the system that, generated that result so you're just going to get the same number every time anyway so exactly so be tiny variation and then you draw a conclusion based on that tiny standard deviation so you're very accurate conclusions but right. don't generalize to the population you want yeah. to generalize yeah yeah, yeah. you know now everything about these three rats are they still alive <laughs> yes <laughs> yes <Okay>. yes <laughs> okay very good so we talked quite a lot about all kind of different reasons where where dark data matters. We talked about um, you know uh, different aspects of it. Uh, it happens in all different areas. We we talked about military, about you know HR data, finance data, m- lots of medical examples. There's a lot of taxonomies. So I very much encourage everybody to have a have a look into the book. Uh, and read the book, be more aware of what might happen and stay curious of what might happen. Because I think that is one of the underlying qualities that we need to have. We need to be curious. We need to be data detectives in in a sense to, to really dig into the data and see kind of Are there any things missing? You know, I'm I'm just thinking about that example with the cholera, I think, in in London. And there was, you know, this one building that had no cases because although it was directly next to the, you know, suspicious suspicious water uh, source, but that was a brewery. And that was kind of a missing data point, missing variable. Yeah, so that... Yeah, because they had pure, they had purified, yeah, they had water. purified water, and they, yeah. Yeah. Purified, purified <laughs> they had their own, uh, their own well. Yeah, so, so therefore, yeah. they weren't affected. And yeah, that's a wonderful yeah. example. And so yeah. there's, you know, all kind of these uh, things. And if you understand them well, then you can adjust for that. Then you can, you know, state your assumptions more carefully. You kind of you come up with kind of better ways to explain it to those that actually decision on this data so that they can better understand the, the uncertainties and the risks with it. David, is there any kind of final thoughts that you would like to give to the listener? I think you've summarized it very nicely. I, I think, you know, be aware of the issues. Think, is there any other way that these results could be explained, some, some distortion in the data which might explain my results, rather than the fact that there is a real effect of the kind I'm after? Every study should ask what are the weaknesses of these data and try to probe what might compromise my conclusions. And I suppose the diversity point, and as I say, I'm an enthusiast for red teams, a sort of peer review, people trying to pick holes in your conclusions, saying, well, yes, I could explain that because of such and such a distortion in the data. And then you can 
check that the data don't suffer from those kinds of problems. That way, your 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 conclusions will be more robust, more likely to be correct. Yep. So avoid any groupthink and and things like this, where you just want, don't want to challenge each other anymore, because you all want to be, you know. Yeah, I think this book is a great resource to give to the people that you collaborate with too, um, you know, because uh, that may help them understand a little bit the way statisticians think. Why Why is it we ask 10 questions when all they want is a sample yes. size? Yes, yeah. yes, 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 that's so, absolutely right. Yeah, you know, yeah. and um, that's, uh, it helps them understand our process for, you know, thinking about how data happens and, and yeah. the impact yeah. of that and maybe sometimes where data doesn't happen. <laughs> I think that's a good point. I mean, statisticians have had an, a, a reputation of being cautious and unhelpful. And the reason we're unhelpful is because we're aware of the, that these problems can occur. And if, if one can help them recognize that we're just trying to protect them, help the, the people we're advising that we're just trying to protect them, maybe that's a, a very good thing. Yeah, I think then we just need to be helpful in explaining why is the data can't answer the question. And where I kind of, you know, not just I can't answer this, but, you know, what could we do to answer it in the future? What are, yes. you know, related questions that we can answer? What are kind of the risks associated with it? So that, you know, do some scenario planning. Yeah, maybe we put this, you know, assumption in it. But if we stress test it, how fast does it yeah. break? Yeah. And, That's and, and show That's that. Good point. Yeah. That's what we have. That's kind of the stress test. Do you want to base your uh, decision on it? What's the risks that you're taking of a wrong decision here? Yeah. 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 yeah we're not just here to say no. That exactly. Is- yes. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, great. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. It's really been a, a, a delight to speak with you. And as I think this has been a great, a great talk together so thank you very much indeed it's been great fun i've enjoyed it very very yeah. searching questions <laughs> thank All you right. very much indeed awesome. <laughs> this show was created in association with psi thanks to rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the link to the book that we talked about and many more stuff also beyond this podcast episode there is material for how to better influence, how to better visualize, and other things that you likely will need as a statistician in the health sector to boost your career. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician. <laughs>